0: Friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Conversations with Consequences. We love our listeners. We love to have you. We hope that these conversations have consequences for you, wonderful consequences that make you grow and make you happy and inspire you. Today, We have a great lineup, as we try to do every week. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my co-hostess, Ashley McGuire, Father Dave Pivanka, who's the president of Franciscan University, about gender ideology and his great piece in USA Today. Um, A very interesting piece in USA Today titled, The Body Matters. That's why, as university president, I'm concerned for my female athletes. But first we turn to Jessica Hooten Wilson. She's a professor of humanities and classical education at the University of Dallas. She has two books coming out next year and she's here to give us a sneak peek of both of them and also the benefit of her very intelligent mind and her expansive vision all about the classics and wonderful literature. Welcome to the show Jessica. Thank you for having me on. So Jessica, I have this impression of your work as as someone who has a way of explaining how how literature how the novel can deepen for us our understanding of of the great truths, and especially of the great Christian truths. Is, Is that a fair assessment? Oh,
1: absolutely. You know, it's, it's funny to hear someone describe your work. Like it's this thing outside of you. It's kind of like when people talk about the tradition, like it's a, a handful of books you wrap up in a package and just pass mm-hmm. to the next person. And for me, it's just an outgrowth of I've always loved stories since I was a kid and I've always been formed by them and shaped by them in my house. And so I've been sharing that passion in all the different forms that I can by writing about it, speaking about it, sharing it in a classroom. So it's really just about who I am as a person.
0: And Jessica, right before we got on the phone on this um, on this uh, interview, I was searching desperately through a Chester one of my Chesterton books. I think it's an Orthodoxy, where. Uh, Chesterton describes the novel as a Christian thing that it it happens because Christianity is romantic it, there's because romance exists in Christianity and then when that romance that Christian romance is written down what it results in is a novel now I'm not asking you to tell me where where that what page that is in orthodoxy I don't know of that <laughs> if you remember reading something like that but does that make sense to you well I don't know exactly where Chesterton would be talking about that but the the idea of the
1: stories that are found in Chesterton right the, the idea of the the ways that he came came to know Christianity was through story. Mm-hmm. And so even Orthodoxy he he says this uh, this is a memoir that is your is not a normal memoir because it's essentially also an argument, but it's not a normal argument. And he, he interrelates those things in a way that imitates what scripture itself is doing. It's a giant story that's also revealing to you the truth that you could actually write into claims, but it's telling you knowledge about the world in a story form. And so all in Christianity is just this great massive story through which to see our reality. And so then every story that's responding to that is either true or false or good or beautiful, based on that master story that's that's written into creation.
0: Oh, that's a lovely way to think about that. Why do you think that people, uh, men and women, do we are we able to to approach these great truths more easily through through novels? than we are maybe through um, through through metaphysical works, or what do you think?
1: Well, I love the way that uh, C.S. Lewis describes it in The Discarded Image, in which he, he says that the medieval thought of a person in three concentric circles. The outer circle of a person was the imagination. The next level in was the intellect, and the middle was the will. So you first began by how do you see things, and then your intellect can analyze how you see those things. But first it's just the senses. It's it's the way you approach the whole world by how you see and hear. I mean that's why all through scripture it is they have eyes that do not see, they have ears that do not hear. We have to have this imagination that is porous, that allows us to, to see and hear reality as it is. And then we can analyze it and didactically talk about it. I and mean, this is the role of literary critics, right? You, you have the great stories that people read, and then you kind of walk people through what it is that they've read and that they can draw from. So I think the imagination is the first access point. It's the one that all of us know from the time we're children. It's the one that shapes who we are and how we have a vision of things.
2: Jessica you've got two books coming out next year and we want to get to both of them but let's start with the scandal of holiness renewing your imagination in the company of literary saints I'm especially really interested in this because I come from a great books background um, oh. but, as, but St. John's College so it was secular and so I'm always I'm very interested in that sort of great books approach um, when it comes to you know more things that hint to the spiritual and Mm -hmm. Um, moral development as a Christian. And so this book really calls us to be the best versions of ourselves. And you pull from lots of different literature, but one of the books you um, pull from is Death Comes for the Archbishop from Willa Cather. And can you tell us more about this especially? Sure. So I tried to consider what are those
1: virtues that don't fit easily into an American identity Mm-hmm. Um, as I've grown up with it and the, the conflation, I think so much between our Christian identity and the American identity. And so there's a lot of that we've inherited that we're really comfortable with about being kind to one another. So I tried to look at virtues that were not comfortable But they're still scriptural, and they need to then override um, some of our sensibilities. So one of that being our lack of comfort with death, whereas the Christian tradition is rooted in, like, memento mori, like, we're Mm -hmm. going to die. And I think it's important for us as we make decisions about what the good life is to always have that mortality in front of us, right? But then, of course, also the immortality afterwards, like, we are souls that will not die But we are creatures in this certain state right now that will. And um, to always be reflecting on that so that we can be making these choices for how we're supposed to live. And I think so, death comes for the archbishop, for example. Um, you have this death comes, so it sounds like it's gonna be this like mystery story, mm-hmm. and it sounds like it's gonna be like really exciting. And yeah, he doesn't die till the very end of the story. It's really just it, about a good life. What is a good life? But she puts death in front of you from the moment you open the book. And so you're thinking about what the good life is always with that end of death registering in your in your mind.
2: Yeah, I really like that because it reminds me actually of one of my tutors who is one of the sort of old-school guys at St. John's that came from um, the University of Chicago, he always just said, you know, the job of St. John's College is to make you better human beings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so even in that secular sense, there was that classical idea of what these books were supposed to do for yes, you. Yes, and that's absolutely. exactly what you're doing but in this Christian context I just I'm really I'm really excited about it personally. <laughs> I think our viewers will be <laughs>
1: too. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah, it's so much of my heart just poured into it because I I think this is the point of life and um for me as a Christian, you know, what does it mean to be a human being you can't understand without the human one, right? Without the mm-hmm. God at the center of that conversation. No, absolutely.
0: My experience has been that in that in novels is when I when I touch most deeply and when I I, when I feel that I grasp deep spiritual truths that affect me and, and they keep affecting me and they, they stick with me and they, 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 and I mull over them because they come clothed in, in personalities and because they come clothed in drama and human interaction, or at least very real on the page. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned virtues that we have discarded, and is that the way your book is arranged about different virtues? Because you mentioned the virtue of uh, remembering that our life is finite, that death comes for all of us, and another right. virtue that I think of all the time that we do encounter in novels, but we don't uh, as a good thing, but we don't often encounter it in, in, in our modern world is the virtue of obedience. Is there one that is there one of one of your uh, topics that you cover the virtue of obedience?
1: Oh, no, but I wish I would have talked to you before I wrote this. Oh. <laughs> I
0: think <laughs> that's <laughs> the next book, thing. then.
1: <laughs> yeah, right? I'm going to have to get on that. You know, it's funny. When I went through all the different virtues, like, there were so many that I thought, okay, I also would need to write about this. I would need to write about, um, you know, the Christian respect for age, both for children and, and the elderly is something that we don't really talk about a whole lot that we need to. So there are all these virtues that I kept thinking these are things that are particular to Christianity. Um, The ones that, the ones that I forefronted for me were ones that came from books that I've just been teaching for years and loving and, in a sense, I think that obedience underlies all of it, but it's an obedience of the created order. You know, um, submit maybe submission is a better way of referring to it. The way that I write about it is submitting to how you were made versus trying to make yourself. Realizing that there's an author of your story versus trying to write your own story. And yeah. so in that sense, I guess there is a submission to the authority that is the author of
0: your life. Wow, that's very pregnant with meaning nowadays, Jessica. Uh, submitting to the way you were made. I can that sort of that rings like a here a huge loud bell in my head considering <laughs> what we're comfron- confronting these days in in human anthropology.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people are very into autonomy. Uh, you know, there's all these books. I mean, my first book was against this idea of the Autonomous self, the authority of the autonomous self, and instead recognizing that our limitations could be good things. I mean, this is a lot of the Catholic writers of the 20th century wrote about limitation in a beautiful way and instead of a negative way. And our current culture is all about conquering the limitations, exceeding the limitations, you know, living the impossible dream instead of recognizing limitations are a key to discernment. We've lost. If we don't see our limitations as guiding us toward a certain path, that's why we feel restless and directionless. We're not acknowledging those limitations as gates that are moving us towards the right doors.
0: And isn't that sense of total autonomy, complete individuality? Don't you think that that, is, that creates terrible anxiety in people? Like the oh, the kind absolutely. the kind we see in, in when you're confronted by a long menu at a restaurant, several <laughs> pages menu, <laughs> and you say, "What yes. in the world?" <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, you know, Walker
1: Percy talks about this a lot in his own novels. His novels are the existential self just in complete crisis where. You, you have no idea what road to take. You don't know that you're even a pilgrim on a road. You're just lost in the wilderness because you don't recognize the road. And I have a friend who wrote a book, I uh, love this title, You Are Not Your Own, Alan Noble. And that title just kind of sums up the case right of course it comes from scripture. But you're not know, you belong to someone else. And once you admit that fact, suddenly the road, You know, each step may be a little bit more light on it. And it may be a little bit more clear the direction you're supposed to go.
2: Yeah. Now, I mean, even to sometimes all this cancel culture going on, and to even say that there is is a road, or you know, any sort of reference to teleology of a human being, um, it's really easy to become concern, consumed with false heroes and narratives. Mm-hmm. And and we have these literary traditions. I know that you did a really great job sticking up for Flannery O'Connor when that was going going down. But how, I mean, you see this in your students. What what do these books and these literary traditions do that can bring? How do they bring? hearts and minds and souls and all that back to these more transcendental uh, ideas of, what, of human flourishing.
1: So one of the things that I used to teach for first year seminars for undergrads was a course that I said, you know, writing your own story. So I, I, I labeled it the way that it really drew Gen Z and millennials into the
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> But it re- But what we started with was Augustine Confessions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so instead, it was learning what they eventually learned uncovered in the course of reading confessions and then surprised by joy lewis is that god is writing their lives they couldn't decide what century they were born in they didn't get to decide their gender they didn't get to decide who their parents were they didn't get to decide who their family members were they didn't get to decide what country they were born in like and suddenly they realized that trying to write the story of their lives all the things that god made the decisions already for them <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) And I think that stepping into this tradition of people trying to look at their lives this way, like they get to see that all of history is a story that started way before them that they're now participating in. And when their lives end, the story isn't over. There's Mm -hmm. another story that continues beyond them. And so getting to see the tradition as this living thing in which, yes, their story has a part to play, but it's not the grand finale. It's just part of this very long story that God's telling. And I think the tradition reminds you of that you get to meet all of these people that have come before you and there's just millions of them and there's so many stories that are told and then there are those that are untold that they to discover and I think that's a great part of this living tradition this understanding of it as being something dynamic that you're stepping into and engaging with.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie and I'm here with my TCA colleague and co-host, Lee Sneed and we have Professor Jessica Hooten-Wilson with us. She's from the University City of Dallas, and she's discussing two great books that she has written. The second one is called "Learning the Good Life: Wisdom from the Great Hearts and Minds That Came Before." You know, talk listening to you talk, Jessica, about these students that you're teaching and and you direct them to where they are standing in relationship to their ancestral past. Who, why they're standing in a certain place and time, a result of certain uh, genetic and uh, familial acts that that result in them, and you're able to direct them into into thinking of how, how wildly adventurous that is to think of yourself yes. as as a product of, of fabulous people that have come before and you're living this great story. Yes. That seems to me very romantic and much more romantic than to think of yourself as starting from scratch every time. Like every human being starts from scratch, starts at zero. Is yes. that how is that how, how your students were perceiving that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the way you're talking about it
1: does sound like Chesterton, echoes of Chesterton. You know, the excitement for the two-year-old Chesterton, right? Is, you know, that the door opens but imagine a world in which there are no doors because you have to create them to make them and then when you make them you already know what's behind them the world is a is a lot less enlivening less <laughs> mm-hmm. excitement when there's no mystery when you're the only person involved in making the world and so I love Chesterton's idea of these opening these doors seeing what's around the corner it's it's life as a discovery it's uh, what Bernanos calls the adventure of sanctity right I mean it's this wonderful path in which you you try to follow those who came before you but they came before you <laughs> so it's a mm-hmm. mysterious uh, paradoxical reality where, where anything can happen and, and and yet, the more you step on the right stones, you get to a greater destination, you know, than when you fall on your way. And uh, so I think it's, I love thinking of reality. And that's it with with that mystery and that adventure.
0: Some people are afraid to pick up novels, some good Christians, some people, people who are Trying to be careful of what they read because it might it might lead them down bad paths or wrong ways of thought. And I'm I'm the first one to say that I'm not I'm not making fun of that because I'm very careful what I ingest right, right. In, in literature and movies and all that. What would you say to people like that who want to who want to deepen themselves deep, deepen their understanding in, of literature and, and drink from? you know, the founts of literature, but without uh, getting themselves sort of in the mire of things.
1: Amit Majmudar wrote this poem called Reading, which is beautiful. It's dedicated to Jorge Luis Borges. Oh, yeah. Um, and the, reason, the reason I love it as a way of starting with this question is he, he talks about, I stand before books as I stand before the night sky. And the books are these infinities that are all demanding to be explored but I don't have a map and I don't have a guide then the blind librarian comes and he takes my hand and I suddenly feel secure knowing where to look and all the stars open into suns and it, so it's just we've lost the understanding of reading as a communal activity and that's one of the reasons I think that it frightens people because you don't know what book to choose it, you know like you said a second ago with the limitless list of options and so you're afraid to choose a book you're afraid to ask because is it isn't it supposed to be about preference? Isn't it supposed to be about taste and what you enjoy and what you prefer? But it's not. Mm-hmm. You know, Reading for thousands of years was about someone showing you what to read, telling you what to read, how to read, telling you how to read. Most of education was telling you how to read and how to engage with the text. And so we've lost this sense that reading should be about the masters, those who have loved the books, who know which books to read, helping the novices walk through that process. So that eventually the novices then become the masters for others. I think we don't need to be afraid if we're considering reading that way. It should not be this isolating. Is this for my own pleasure? But if it's for my own pleasure, or my pleasure is going to lead me awry, and instead consider reading with guides and reading with others and reading in community and looking for that advice for how to read well.
2: And I love this idea of librarian like Beatrice. It's so beautiful. That poem, it's beautiful. It's funny, I have a soft spot for Borges because my dad was an English professor and one of his treasured possessions was a photograph of Borges, a desk lecturing in his class.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, it was so cool. Yeah,
2: it was Um, so cool. And he actually was sort of like my guide through books before I got to St. John's. He was always handing me things to read and things he thought were, you know, appropriate. And I remember things like The Awakening and, you know, just things like that when you're a teenage girl, it's just like, oh, this whole world out there. And of course, you know, the Lost generation (laughs) writers, of course, appeal to you. And so I, I felt ready and not ready for St. John's but because you start off with day Anima and I'm like what did I do this is in English <laughs> um, <laughs> um. So you don't, but you don't just include literature in in your books. You, you do the whole canon, and okay. you bring it. And what I really like, actually, for me, as I've become well, great books speak right, a more advanced student, even though I'm not technically a student anymore, and I'm allowed to read outside resources and read the letters of Flannery O'Connor and mm-hmm. realize and sort of read the more gossipy things about who was friends with whom and who proofread whose books. And what I find now is that I read one novel, and then I re- it leads me mm-hmm. to other books because of the references in it. I have to look. For that up and then I find that and the book themselves, and obviously that works better when they're contemporaries of each other. Do you do like what's the uh, plant the layout of your book? Is it chronological, or do you go by themes, or how does it? I've talked about it? the
1: scandal of holiness. Or?
2: We are talking about um, learning, learning the, the good system. life.
1: Learning the good life. a so second one. Sorry, I should. So, <laughs> my publishing life is so weird. I like, <laughs> it's like three or four year breaks, so and then I put out three books at one time. Yeah, <laughs> uh, learning the good life is chronological. The theme that kind of ties the reflections the introductions, the exordiums of each text together, is what does it mean to learn as a Christian? So this goes back to the idea of, you know, the tradition, the practices Mm -hmm. of piety by which to approach a text. Because if you approach text as a minor trying to pull whatever gems you think are worthwhile like you could just be pulling a bunch of rocks and, and dust out of uh, the text itself and not get what the text is trying to do, and so we we talk about the virtues of reading, and you know the ways of approaching text. Through the text themselves, so the exordium kind of shows you, it guides you. It's it's that librarian that says like, look here, and then you read the excerpt following it, and then there's discussion questions. And so we collected professors across the country from all different traditions, and even some of my friends who are teachers but who are not in the university system, and uh, asked them like, what text. You know, if if the world was ending, what is the small mm. excerpt that you want to make sure the next generation doesn't lose? And so, and I wanted I wanted the book to be a lot more expansive than I think a lot of these readers have been in the past. We we've had um, probably more of a canon that had this majority, um, you know, very male, white. Western mm. just at the heart of things because that was what we were used to and that was passed down to us but the more that I've been in graduate school and out of grad, grad school and getting to hear some of these voices I had never heard before yeah. and you know discovering Marjorie Kemp and discovering Julian of Norwich and discovering her and, and these are things I just never had access to and so we made sure that we were showing everyone that was at the table right, and um, trying to be as hospitable to this feast of discourse throughout the tradition as we could be so so the book moves all the way from, I think it's like Confucius to Tony Morrison essentially. Oh,
2: wow. I love it. And I love the idea of the conversation notes because post-pandemic, it's exactly what everybody's wanting. And is it mm-hmm. something you could do? You could pick, you wouldn't have to do the whole book. You could just pick a chapter to read with your friends and yes, are they, are they self-contained? Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely.
1: And that, that's one of the reasons we did it too. I, you know, I have the privilege right now of traveling to lots of classical schools and mostly who I talk to are not students. I'm talking to parents. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. <laughs> the
1: parents are thinking like, I know that I should choose this education and great books for my kids but I have no idea what you're talking about I've never read Homer never read Shakespeare and I, I cannot keep up with my child and so this is also one of those books where you could you could do a section of it at dinner together mm-hmm. and you could just enjoy reading parts of it aloud and asking questions and having dinner table conversation. I mean, we very intentionally put a big table on the front of the book and showed all these friends dining around it on our cover to say like to suggest that like, this is what intellectual life should look like. It should look like a table. It should look very relaxed and enjoyable. This is not an elitist thing that belongs in the academy. These are the texts that, that make us and that should be shaping our culture.
0: I like this, Jessica, because I think in the absence of literature, what takes the place for that kind of interaction and back and forth is politics, which is not we you know which is can be very divisive and can cause a lot of anxiety because of you know if, if your guys in in power right now or your 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 political whoever you think is correct. Um, I like the I like the idea of having a book like yours as as a point of departure for for wonderful conversation. Well,
1: and it's also about permanent things. You know, you don't have to feel like if you're talking about justice in Aristotle that he's gonna change.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) So whereas if you talk about justice according to the current headline or the current political party, that has a temporary label on it, right? It's gonna expire as a conversation pretty quick. So these kind of conversations will last Forever, right? Your understanding of Aristotle's justice, you'll return to over and over and
0: over again. You can't finish it. I read a a little quote from Confucius the other day by chance, and I sent it to my, I have two children now who are married, and it said something like, It is the duty of children to give grandchildren to their parents. And I thought, wow, what an incredibly intelligent man. <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: that's so great. I, yeah, I was listening to Sirach this morning that was talking about if you want to be honored, honor to your father your father and mother. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's, I mean, that is the way that this works. Like,
0: it's just revealing. This is how the world is, right? Mm-hmm. These things that tell us the truth. And there's so much out there to, to delve into. You're, I think that your students are very lucky, Jessica, to have you as a teacher. It sounds like you're somebody who, who has a, a very big mind and a very big heart.
1: Oh, oh, thank you. Yes. And I, you know, I, I love the connection between the two. To me, it should be, I worked at John Brown University for years and I loved their motto, um, heart, Head and hand, oh, right? nice. all of those go together to make to us
2: who we are. I, I really love that. And can, can you tell me? All I could think of was all the different families I want to give this book to as a Christmas present. But the publishing, the publishing date isn't until the spring. Is that right? Right, right. So, um, so of Holiness
1: is March, and then um, in May it is uh, Learning the Good
0: Life. And going okay. back to your Holiness book, Jessica, why you said in March? What the Holiness in March. book? It's in March, okay. And who who is the focus of that book? Like, who do you who do you envision as a, as a great uh, reader for that book?
1: Well, you know, you were just talking about politics, and I think that's actually a good reference point, because our political culture really demands that we we use whatever means we can towards what we think is a good end, even though it's an impermanent end, right? And so we're willing to completely adjust our motivations and our actions for anything. So I'm hoping that my book is really for the church to remind us that, the political sphere is not the sphere that we ultimately belong to, mm-hmm. and we might have to be, as you know, Russell Moore would say, like we might have to be defensive within that sphere to protect religious liberty. But that's only so we can reinvest in the church and go back to what it looks like as a community to strive after holiness. So my book is is very much for the church. I'm hoping that people are going to read it in Bible studies and start bringing literature into their Sunday school classes, and that this is the kind of book that will replace, you know, talking about the poplet, you know, at your local book club. Instead, maybe I, can, maybe I can in part be a blind librarian and say, here are some of the books that I would recommend you read.
0: Well, it sounds like you would be the perfect guy, Jessica. And I, I thank <laughs> you. I thank you very much for, for sharing your time with us. And and we hope that, that your books will achieve great success and lead a lot of uh, hearts and minds to the truth and ultimately to God. So thank you for being with us today, Jessica. Thank you. back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Welcome to the show, Father Dave.
4: Thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you.
0: Well, we can't thank you enough for giving us some of your precious time. You have an, an, a very important position, and I'm sure that every second of your day is accounted for as president <laughs> of Franciscan University. It must be very hard to get a moment but but you're giving us
4: It really is.
0: Oh thank you you're giving us some of your moments and really we wanted to talk to you because you wrote um, a very interesting piece in USA Today titled the body matters. That's why, as university president, I'm concerned for my female athletes. Now, we, we thought that as a university president, you are on the front lines of this Mack truck of gender ideology, which is mowing down everything in front of it, but especially in, in academia and in schooling for young people. And so we were really interested in your take.
4: Well, you're right. It, is, uh, it seems to be a train that's moving, and honestly, it's just running over over people. In this particular situation, I think it's uh, running over women. And and it, it's interesting. I mean, the story is, I tell the story of one of our female athletes here at the Francis University, and she's just a phenomenal athlete. And I was just watching her one day and she was training and, and just began to wonder, you know, what's this going to look like in another couple of years? There are situations of biological men who are uh, participating in in female sports and it just there's just something wrong with it. But, but actually, honestly, truth be told, uh, she and I first started talking about this over a year ago about saying something and and writing something. And I'm going to be very honest with you: is I was concerned. Uh For her is that we live in a world that's so volatile, and you're you're right that train is going down the track and and it'll run over whoever gets in the way and I was honestly concerned about what would it look like for her to compete would would people do things to her would people say things to her and and because boy, you can't you can't disagree with that. You can't hold another opinion on this topic, or you're the enemy, and and they'll do whatever they need to do to to try to silence them. And 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 at the end of the story is is her looking? I always say looking up at me because she's about five foot nothing, uh, and she says to me, "Father Dave, we have to say something. Some things are more important than racing, and and that's why when this whole situation came out uh, with the athlete from Penn." It seemed to me, alright, this is, this is the time that we need to say something. So that's why we did.
0: But Father, um, you bring up a point about being canceled and being aggressed for expressing an opinion that doesn't go along with um, the current ideologies. But what about, are you wor- does she worry about her life after competition, how she can get a job if she becomes notorious? Because this is what I'm hearing from uh, young people like, I, I have, one, co- I have one, one of my five children is in college now. He says people are very afraid for their future if they get blackballed in college or talked about in college for being um, conservative in any way.
4: Right, right. Well, and again, her, her statement was, we need to stand up. Mm-hmm. And, and this is a girl. It's just honestly, again, she's one of the top athletes in the country. And this is simply consistent with who she is. And that's she's tough. She's scrappy. She's not afraid to to work and get dirty and pull up her sleeves and and, and she just sees this fight as a part of it. And my hope, honestly, is it is that it really doesn't become a fight for her, you know? It, it's not, unfortunately, it's not her fight. She's just placed, she's been placed in the middle of it.
5: Mm-hmm. So. Father, I've written a book about this, um, and, you know, I devoted an extensive section to it about women's sports, and this was five years ago, and it's been incredible to see how quickly this has all accelerated and In your article, you, you know, make the point that Title IX was designed to protect women's sports and to create a space where women can, you know, compete and showcase their skills against other women. And so, you know, this is really showing how gender ideology especially hurts women. Um, And I also thought you did a great job in your piece of you know, pointing out the need to be sympathetic to people who are truly experiencing genuine confusion and who couldn't in this crazy culture. Um, are, are you seeing this play out on your campus in ways other than sports or, or is it mostly an athletics issue?
4: Well, at it, the moment, it, it's across, it, it's not just, well, first off, I would say bigger picture it's the identity of the human person. And that's really what I want to try to get across is, is the human person is beautiful. Uh, it should be honored. It should be, we should be awed by that. And it's not just the gender identity where the attack on the human person is taking place. I mean, today with all that's taking place with the abortion Roe versus Wade, there's always, you know, for decades there's been an attack on the human person and, and it's not just gender identity. It's what a person should look like. And so we're seeing that across the board. Um, are there, uh, Athletes here that have, have been a part of this because they're competing? Yes. Um, uh, yes, that they've competed against other athletes who are transgendered athletes. Do we have young people who are wrestling with who are they? One of the things I've, I've shared a lot recently is, you know, when we were younger, we asked the question, who am I? But the kids are asking the question, what am I? And that's a fundamental different question that uh, that relates to them trying to be comfortable with who they are and who it is that God's created them to be. So yes, our, our kids are walking out of situations in their high schools and in their communities where this is in their front of them. It's constantly bombarding them. And yes, we have kids that are wrestling with this and asking the questions and and my hope and my prayer honestly is that is that we can help them work through this and help them walk through this and wrestle with it where the vast majority of people in our culture today says oh you have a question well here's your solution you know take these take this medicine or believe this thing that's i, I believe is ultimately a lie so we're we're trying to do our best to equip our young people and our students to really to be able to deal with this and reconcile who they are and who God created them to be. Father,
0: Father, what I find uh, when when I'm when I talk to young people, which I do very very often on this topic. Um, in fact, when we finish here, I'm going to go teach a CCD class <laughs> exactly on this topic for for young teens. And um, what what I'm finding when I speak to them is that there's this opposition between the truth, for instance, that a man. Cannot become a woman by simply declaring himself a woman or by doing any kind of hormonal or surgical alteration. That's the truth that I think all of us can agree on. And then there is the, the this this deep necessity that's been instilled in everyone to never hurt anyone's feelings. And and that's what I, that's the feedback I'm getting from students from young people who say sure. I can understand. That it's not true that a man can become a woman, and that I can, and I can see that it's unjust that a man swimmer should swim against women and demolish them and call himself a woman at the same time. But I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. What would you say to that, to young people?
4: Well, it's, it, and, and that's where this really becomes problematic: is that those two things are ultimately inconsistent. That that you're not going to be able to speak the truth, and people are people are going to be offended by the truth. I, I gave a talk on campus the other night. The scripture last thursday maybe it's wednesday was from john it's a, it's a famous john three where he forgot to love the world but john goes on to say that people preferred the dark mm-hmm. and and that unfortunately that's still the case so that honestly as, as i've wrestled with this that's one of the things that i've i've struggled with is that i know that when i wrote that article and put it out that there are people that were gonna be hurt by it. And we're, I, I think I think I wrote it fairly sensitively, but I still know that there were gonna be people hurt by it. And that's one of the things that some of the comments that people have made, it's like, well, why is Father Dave entering into this dialogue? You know, why is Francis University even commenting on this? Well, because
3: as you stated earlier, that,
4: that there are some things that are true. And, and as Alison as said, some things that are worth fighting for and just believe that the time was now that we needed to ultimately say something. And, and just if I may, At that moment, because one of the things that I'm I'm joking, my next op-ed piece is going to be writing an op-ed piece on writing an op-ed piece, because to be able to have that printed in USA Today was, you know, a major undertaking. And, And some of the things that were required was some of the language, like if you'll notice, USA Today has a policy that you cannot use the word biological male. They find that offensive. So we had to be able to to work with USA Today to even get that article published. But it, it speaks to a population of people that simply doesn't have ears to hear, you know if the word biological male is offensive then what are we doing we have we have to be able to speak the truth and you know it's funny <laughs> i feel like like allison has been bullied and i feel like some of the people that have been speaking out is have been bullied but we live in a world in an age that you're right you can't speak out you can't say something and if you if you do you're you're a bully you're intolerant you're a bigot you're a homophobic you're all of those things that, that label us and by labeling us trying to shut off the discussion and i mean one of the points i kind to is, is is this inability to disagree now your point is well taken that if we don't believe things are true or if i believe i am the, the determining factor of what's true that's why these issues become so volatile is that we're ultimately challenging them we're not challenging an objective reality we're, we're challenging them and that's part of the problem that we have i think in this whole conversation
5: shocking to hear that they won't allow the youth of the expression biological male. And yet I shouldn't be shocked because I've recently seen things like religious freedom and scare quotes. So we are in strange times indeed. Father, you know, as a Catholic priest, you are more well-versed than most in terms of the richness that the church has to offer when it comes to complementarity of the sexes and, and thinking, you know, the thinking the church has put into this Um, And I have to say, as a convert, it was reading Theology of the Body that really was something that drew me in, and I think there's a sense that there's a fear that speaking truthfully repels people, but... Is it your experience that speaking the truth can also draw people in? And I'm curious to know, you know, apart from you writing a very brave piece in USA Today, what else is your university doing to sort of be both, you know, gentle but courageous on this matter and, and other difficult matters of truth?
4: I, I appreciate your comment on Theology of the Body, because I think if you read that piece, you realize that, while I didn't come out and say John Paul II, Theology of the Body. It's at the heart of it. The body actually does matter. The human body communicates just by its its physicalness. So a human male and a human female communicate differently just because an individual's mind is telling them something. The body still communicates, And, and that's one of the things I was trying to get across, that the body matters. I mean, at the university, that that we've made a commitment time and time again, and and I told the students when I preached on this topic Friday night that that we are going to be faithful to the gospel and we're going to be faithful to the teachings of the Church and we're going to communicate those things. And if that puts us at odds with culture, so be it. Now, I also have said that St. Francis, some of the things that he did in his time put him at odds. So that we're going to do it with charity and we're going to do it with humility— but we are going to speak the truth and and I think the the mandate of the gospel demands that we do that and but again I, I don't I, the scripture reminds us that that the world hated him first and the scripture reminds us that things that Jesus said and scriptures come up and they say, what you said offended us so some of the things we do and some of the things we say are going to offend people. we need to do our best to do it in charity and and to recognize, you know, the human person in front of us. But sometimes it demands that we speak out. And and the university has been doing that on pro-life issues. We've been doing it on pro-family issues. We've been doing it on, you know, issues related to the poor and access to education. So this one is, is a little bit more controversial, a little bit more inflamed. But Uh, Yeah, I just think it's what the Lord wants us to do, to be able to speak to the things that are objectively true. And to the degree that we're communicating that, ultimately, my hope is that it leads the individual to the source of that truth, right? Not just to an argument or not just to a well-written piece, but to the source of truth that ultimately will bring greater clarity and peace to this whole issue.
5: Father, you've been the president of the university since 2019. Um, So it's been a very tumultuous and strange couple of years on many
4: fronts.
5: (laughs) What have been some of the other top challenges that you've had to deal with or or what are some of your other sort of greatest concerns or or even triumphs um, over the last couple of years and even looking into the future?
4: yeah well sure i th- i think obviously the the covid crisis and covid situation was something uh that it has been unbelievably challenging. The image that I've used, it's its like trying to juggle sand. But I, I, I'm not sure how familiar you are, but one of the things that we did at Franciscan University was the the fall semester of 2020 when everybody was trying to figure out, you know, COVID was still re- relatively new. What were we going to do? Franciscan University made a decision to invite all new students, all freshman students to the university uh, tuition free because there was a real step in faith at that time. People just didn't know what this was going to look like. So I said that, you know, we're in, we're making a step in faith that everything's going to go okay and and work out all right. So we invited the students to make that with us, and and it was received as you can imagine, wonderfully. That we've got the most students we've ever had on campus right now. But I think part of that was uh, an invitation to not be consumed by fear. You know, I think I think we took COVID seriously and and we took precautions, but we also were not going to be paralyzed by fear and. And to be able tomorrow, I'm actually the the stage is right outside my window. We're going to have a celebration mass tomorrow. In, in in essence, this the end of the pandemic and opening up a new chapter uh, for where the Lord is leading us. So that that's obviously was a, a serious serious issue. But the other part is just providing an opportunity for young people. I think one of the things that they crave most is relationship and community. So making sure that we provide in, in an environment where young people can come together, they can be challenged in, in their intellectual endeavors, but then they can do that in a community that is faith-based. Christ is in the center. The beauty of the church is proclaimed. So that's, I mean, I've got, there, there are days that are really, really difficult and there are days that are stressful. But I'm just looking out my window right now and I'm seeing young people walk back and forth to class and it's a beautiful spring day. It's, it's, it's a great blessing to be able to be a part of this.
0: On the one hand, Father, you you have tremendous challenges. On the other hand, you have something that supports you that's that I would think it's only a handful of university presidents have, which is a full a full embrace of, of the Catholic of our Catholic faith and, and our Catholic values and our beautiful philosophy that is that is so yeah. placed on truth. Most people don't have this who are in your exalted position, Father.
4: No, I mean, that's why I, again I'm so blessed to be, you know, to, to be the president of a university, but to be a president of this Franciscan Catholic University, where we have a theology department philosophy and professors that that embrace the truth and the beauty of the church. We have four masses a day on weekdays that are the chapel, the kids, you know, I, the, the, the mass I'm always most impressed with is 6.30 in the morning. All right, you're on a college campus and you go to mass at 6.30 in the morning and you find a couple hundred kids <sighs> in mass before they go to class. I mean, I get to be a part of that. I'm I'm so so blessed and and humbled by our faculty and our staff and our students. I really am.
0: Well, Father, may may God continue to bless your work and thank you for for being so brave and penning that piece in USA Today. Our listeners can can find it um, under his name, Dave Pavanka, and and may God continue to help you in this in this great charge that He gave you.
4: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to spend some time with you.
0: And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel.
3: This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when Jesus will talk to us about his mercy toward us, and how that's meant to transform us to love others with the same merciful love with which he has loved us first. St. Peter asked Jesus, If my brother sins against me, how often must I forgive him? One of the most difficult aspects of living the Christian faith is the teaching about loving even our enemies and forgiving those who repeatedly wrong us, hate us, and persecute us. When people hurt us, we think it's magnanimous and generous sometimes to give them a second chance. If we forgive them yet again, we think it's an act of heroism, and sometimes it is. If we forgive them a third time, we think we're ready for canonization. But Jesus' standards for us are higher. He wants us to become as merciful as our Heavenly Father is merciful. And each of our autobiographies shows clearly that God has given us way more than one or two spiritual mulligans. The rabbis taught, based on a misinterpretation of a passage from the prophet Amos, that we needed to forgive three times to give someone a fourth chance. Peter, after asking Jesus how often he must forgive and while he was waiting for his response, multiplied Amos's figure by two and added one and said, as many as seven times? This would be an almost astronomical standard. Giving someone an eighth chance before writing someone off is incorrigible. Jesus, however, replied, no, seventy sevens, And whether that means 70 times seven or 490 or 70 plus seven, 77 times, really doesn't matter because seven is a number already with the sense of infinity. It means to forgive without limit. Jesus says Peter must forgive every time a brother or sister wrongs him. But Jesus says to Peter, he says also to us. We too must never refuse forgiveness to anyone who has wronged us, even and especially those who have wounded us deeply. We must forgive fathers and mothers who have hurt us when we were younger. Brothers and sisters who have betrayed us, friends who have deceived us, priests or nuns who have scandalized us, assailants who have attacked us, and terrorists who have mercifully killed those closest to us. This is a tough teaching, but it is Jesus' teaching. Jesus makes the point clear by means of the parable he gives us, which I've always found among his most powerful. He describes two debtors. The first is brought into the king for owing what our translation says is a huge amount The actual term used by St. Matthew is 10,000 talents. One talent was equivalent to 6,000 denarii, and a denarius was a full day's wage. That means the man owed 60 million days' worth of work, something that would take him literally 164,271 years to pay off. His request after he had fallen prostrate on the ground and begged for time to pay it back was totally absurd he would need to live to be about 165,000 years old. To monetize his debt in today's terms in order to better understand it, if he were making $100 a day or twelve fifty an hour, he would have owed $6 billion. But the text tells us that when the king saw the man on the ground begging absurdly for time, his heart was moved with pity and he forgave the entire debt. He didn't even make him pay what he could, he forgave it all. We're supposed to see in this what God does for us. He forgives our entire debt, 10,000 talents worth, seven seventy-seven 490 times and more. His merciful generosity is the most distinctive reality about the world. But then the parable describes that the servant who had been forgiven the equivalent of billions went off and met a servant who owed him 100 denarii, 100 days wages, by the same pay rate, about $10,000, something that could easily be paid off in a few months. The second debtor, using the same words and actions as the first, fell down begging for time to pay it off. The first debtor must have recognized that the phrase and actions being employed reminded him of his own recent condition. But instead of shearing mercy with the second debtor, instead of even giving him time to pay it off, he went up and started to choke him in anger and threw him into prison until his family was able to raise the hundred denarii to pay him back it was obvious that the first debtor hadn't been transformed by the incredible act of mercy of the king. He had received the king's debt forgiveness superficially. Even on a day on which he would have been forgiven billions, he couldn't even be patient to a small-time debtor, even if the hundred denarii that he had loaned likely had come from the 10,000 talents he had been forgiven. At that point, The other servants of the king, seeing the behavior of their colleague, were saddened and disturbed. They went to the master, not so much as a tattletale, to let him know what was happening in his kingdom, that the standard of mercy he had shown was not being emulated. The king summoned the first debtor, called him wicked, and asked a poignant question. I forgave you your entire debt because you asked me to. Should you not have had pity on your fellow servant as I had had pity on you? Rather than paying the mercy for it, he stifled the flow and he was sent to prison until he should pay back the last penny. Something because of the size of the debt was obviously impossible, even in many lifetimes. Because he was unwilling to forgive a small debt, he would be in prison forever. His lack of forgiveness, rather than what he owed, was what got him sent to an unending incarceration. What are the lessons for us? First lesson is that we're either merciful like the Father and forgive others their sins against us, or we're wicked because we do not extend to our fellow servants the pity that the Lord has shown us first. Merciful or wicked. There's no third option. If we're not merciful to others, we're not faithful to our baptism and Christian identity. The second lesson is about the debt we've incurred to God because of our sins. It's unpayable. We owe more to God than the U.S. national debt. There's no way we can ever pay it back. We're always debtors, not creditors in the forgiveness department. God the Father didn't write off our debt, but rather sent his son to pay the debt for us with his own body and blood on Calvary. Our sins have incurred an infinite debt to God, and God himself mercifully paid it. Since we've received his forgiveness in baptism in the Sacrament of Reconciliation, we're called to go out likewise and forgive others the much smaller debts to us, because nothing anyone could ever do to us even if he or she were to torture us or kill those closest to us, amounts to anywhere close to what we've done to the Son of God made man through our sins. The third lesson is that God's mercy toward us, which is infinite and everlasting, can be forfeited. In this parable, the master who had written off the $6 billion debt revoked it when he saw the one whom he had refused, whom he had had forgiven, refuse similar mercy to the person who owed him. God makes this point emphatically throughout sacred scripture. Jesus tells us in this Sunday's gospel, so my heavenly father will also do to every one of you, treat us like the king treated the first debtor at the end of the parable, unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. He says the same thing after he teaches us in the Our father to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we have forgiven those who have trespassed against us. None of us should miss the eternal consequence if either God revokes his forgiveness or we forfeit it. We'll go to hell where there will never be enough time to pay our debt. We can add, however, that if we fail to forgive others, we don't have to wait until we go to hell because we'll all already be experiencing a type of hell on earth. The past pains due to other sins against us will always remain in the present, raw and heavy, dragging us down by their weight. Jesus gives us the command to forgive others, not just so that we might imitate his merciful love and not even so that we won't revoke it by our failure to be merciful to others, but so that we might experience the liberation and joy mercy brings to the giver. Framed positively, this third lesson that Jesus is teaching us in this parable is that we need to pay his mercy forward. We've been made rich in mercy by God's generosity and we're called to shear it. It's like God has made us billionaires and he wants us lavishly to share that gift with those who owe us because of the debts of their sins toward us. Calling us to forgive in this way, Jesus was calling us to imitate him. As he was dying to pay the debt for our sins, he cried out, not in pain, but in mercy. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The them and the they he was referring to were not just the Roman soldiers who clearly knew how to crucify someone, but all of us who, when we sin, really don't have a clue about how they crucify and kill our Savior. There is a similar consequential ignorance when we sin against others and others sin against us. Today, Jesus is asking us to make his words our own, to make his love our own, to make his mercy our own by our receiving it from him in the sacrament of mercy and by our sharing that forgiveness generously with others he was mercy incarnate has made us rich in mercy like his father he's restored us to 10,000 talents we've squandered and he wants us to spend that merciful love down to the last penny let's get started God bless you